Hello everyone, Brian here. If you'd like to support the Head Games Podcast, I encourage you to check out our Patreon page over at www.patreon.com forward slash headgamespodcast, games spelled G-A-M-S, of course. There's all kinds of exclusive content and perks waiting for you over there, so please go ahead and check us out, and thank you as always for your support. everyone, and welcome to episode 21 of the Head Games Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb, joined, of course, by my co-host, Mr. Jonathan Carter. Hello, Jonathan. It's good to hear your voice again. It's good to hear yours, too. It's been a little bit. Yeah, it's it's been a few weeks. Uh, things have been busy on both of our ends, of course, as they often are these days when you have a bunch of projects you're juggling around and you also have your full-time job. You have many cats to take care of who I often hear <laughs> meowing at me from the background. Yeah. I, I know you're a busy man these days. Yeah, it's possible that they'll make a, a cameo today. I was telling Brian before we started recording, my one cat has like major... FOMO, like fear of missing out that she's developed all of a sudden. And she just like meows at closets lately and just wants to just wants to know it's behind every door. So our editor is amazing, but it's possible Panya will will thwart his best efforts. My dog, if we're talking about weird pet things, I mean, first of all, my dog is just slowly losing his mind. I love him very much, but he's getting elderly at this point, just does some really insane stuff. But recently he's developed fear of every heater in my house and like so our, our heaters are obviously like grates in the wall yeah and particularly this one heater upstairs when you walk between like our bedroom and our dressing room and you go down the hallway into our living room he is terrified of the heaters in that hallway and he'll just stand there squeaking for like five minutes until, I'm like, <laughs> until i go to his side and like walk him down the hallway maybe what we need to do for our next venture jonathan is head games for pets and we'll just start diagnosing these pet problems there you go it's probably a thing they have like pet salons and and all that stuff i I imagine there's a market (laughs) you know it's so funny too because i'm certainly guilty of this because we all love our pets very much Right, right like we want the best for them we'll do anything for them and Kai's thing over the past year or so is that he has bad arthritis in his hips. Mm. So we're trying everything possible to, you know, just ease his pain and make him comfortable. And he's currently taking Rimadol and he takes Tramadol and all these different pills to try and make him comfortable. But we have no real way of knowing if any of this does anything. Yeah. Like there's there's no feedback mechanisms whatsoever. All these pills could be fake, quite honestly, and we'd have no idea ever. So it's a really weird thing we do where we try and make our pets, you know, happy and comfortable and we get them all these things and we get no feedback on any of it. Hmm. Coming soon. It's the classic like uh, the cat games. in the box. Yeah, pet <laughs> games. I like it. That's good. It's the classic cat in the box conundrum, yeah. right? Where you buy your cat like a thousand dollar you know, climbing thing and they hop in the box for the climb. Oh yeah. We stopped a while ago, like bottle caps and cardboard is their favorite toys. And Huge hits in the cat community. Absolutely. We have a friend recently who got a cat and I was just, he's like, what do I buy? I'm like, I don't know, man. I just, I use the free stuff. It's all, it's all a sham. Yeah. What, what do you have in the house? Cause yeah, whether, whether you give it to them or not, they're going to take it. Yeah. No, uh, animals are great, obviously. And I, I love all these little nuances and quirks they have, but let's move on to gaming related stuff the head the games part of head games if you will i got an interesting email in the past few weeks and it's been one i I wanted to talk about on the cast for a while it slipped my mind last week and i'm glad i remembered it today because one of our listeners reached out to me via email and wanted to share i don't know if i want to call it a situation or a struggle it just just an experience they've been having and it's one i shared and i thought it was really interesting and i want to talk about it this comes from uh luciano from brazil i I love that we have listeners all over the world yeah that's awesome yeah it'll never stop as as interconnected as our world is at this part at this point with the internet and the fact that you know we have all these communication channels it's still like really brightens my day to know that we have listeners Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of miles away but anyway luciano said they feel like nowadays starting to play a new game is like learning a new language or beginning a new sport. The learning curve takes time and to perform well, you need to do it frequently. There's ladders you need to climb to get rewards at the end of the season, daily quests, coins, all that stuff. And Luciano says that they're feeling a sense of duty that they need to fulfill every day or they'll be losing and missing out on something. 
they find that's causing anxiety and all of these factors together, the difficulty, the the grindiness of so many games are basically affecting Luciano to the point where they don't even want to try to learn new games. And I get this. I feel this so, so wholeheartedly. And it's weird because I love games so much and I love learning games and I love understanding systems and even just like rule books like there are certainly games that i have purchased knowing i will never play them and i just want to read the rules and know more about them like i've never played a game of dungeons and dragons in my life i've certainly read many dungeons and dragons source books though like i have some familiarity with the rule systems and i don't know that i'll ever play it i just think the systems are fascinating Mm -hmm. so it's it's this weird counterbalance of wanting to have these new experiences and learn these new things and also Games are so much now. You have to learn so much. I mean, what's been your experience picking up new games? Is it something that you struggle with as well? Or is this a problem that Luciano and I share uniquely? (laughs) No, I'm with y'all. Like, I'm also fascinated just by rule systems, uh, just how things work. And we've talked about our competitive sides a lot on this cast. I just, it's really hard for me to go into something Uh, like a a game or a competition. And if there's any knowledge that I can find or gain, I I like have to have all of it. Like I just dive in and I like, I don't know if you remember the movie, uh, like short circuit, Johnny five, like robots. I think it's the eighties. Yeah. yeah. Like he just, just kept wanting to consume more data. Like, and you would like flip (laughs) through the books, like super fast. Like that, that's me. And so I I definitely feel this with games, uh, especially now that I've, day job, side job, married, pets, uh, social responsibilities. Like there's just not as much time as there was when I was younger or in college where I could devote a lot of my free time, which I had a lot more of to gaming that, yeah, it's hard to balance this competitive nature with cool new games coming out. And then we've talked about it a little bit, but like just the way games are designed now, a lot of them have these constant carrots that they feed you. And in particular, if you're competitively minded, you like lose steps against other people. If you're not staying on the treadmill, like they are. Yeah. That's an excellent point. One of the problems that we talked about at length with laddering systems, but my approach to this, and it's not something I can shake on a individual game to game basis. Like if I'm going to pick up a new fighting game, I'm going to learn my combos. I'm going Mm -hmm. to practice for a period of time. If I pick up a new MOBA, then I'm going to study item builds and things like that. I think those games are inextricably linked with that style of study. And there's no avoiding that. And if you want to participate in those games, you're basically consenting to taking on that part of it as well. Like those games just simply can't exist without that aspect. They're too complicated. There's too many systems. And that's part of their appeal. And it's part of the reason why I love them so much. But what I've had to do is just understand you can't do all of them. Mm -hmm. Like you, You just can't do every game. You can't do every genre of game. You have to let some things go. And if you are looking for more casual gaming experiences, you have to actively seek them out. You have to have games that are built in that fashion. They don't have the same feedback mechanisms. They don't have the same leaderboards and ladder climbs and daily quests. They are purposely built to be self-contained entities. And there are fewer of those games these days, without question. That's, That's not generally how games are designed because that's kind of like... If you make a game like that, you can get a one-time money influx. If you make a game with cosmetics and this and that, then you can get a constant money influx. So all the incentive is in creating these you know, extended experiences. But I do think there's a significant community that has rebelled against that style of thinking and is making games purposely to get back to that aesthetic of being self-contained and being one-off experiences. And it's kind of on you to seek them out and realize that that's what you're looking for in the moment. That's what you want to play and make sure you do that. Yeah. I, I think like being like setting your relationship with the competition is something that I've worked on too it's not a, not a video game like we've been talking, but I picked up hockey a couple years ago and most of my athletic life was playing lacrosse, which is on 
grass. <laughs> you don't have to skate. And so the the sports are very similar in terms of offense and defense. So my brain has all these schema, this muscle memory of where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to do, how I how I defend somebody. But all of a sudden, I'm on two very thin blades on ice and my legs don't do what my brain wants it to do if it were like a lacrosse field. So with hockey, I've been able to set it in my head. Like this is not something I'm going to, I'm not going back to college, number one. And so I like, I'm not going to be a college athlete in hockey. I'm definitely not going to be a pro. So this is just a fun sport that I play with some friends and it, it's a good way to stay fit. And I've come to terms with the fact that like, not, not even like a fixed mindset of, of my potential growth. Like I am, I'm still attempting to be better each time I play, but I am way more realistic where, what my current potential is. And I just accept Mm. that. Like I'm still as competitive as possible within my current bracket. Like I'm able to be okay with that. And I've done that yeah. same approach to certain games too. Yeah. And I think that's smart. You're not trying to constantly ascend brackets. You're trying to be the best in your present right. bracket. And with the time, with the resources, everything right. that I have currently, like just using those as the basis. And until those change, just understanding, you know, what can I maximize here? So there's a struggle that comes with that, right? Because, and I think the struggle is less pronounced in something like hockey, where you authoritatively know, Jonathan, if you don't know this, I'm sorry to break this to you, (laughs) but you will not be going to the NHL at any point. You're you're not going to reach the highest level of hockey competition. Uh, Um, Sorry, sorry to let you down. But uh, it's different in something like, say, magic, right? Obviously, Mm. you play magic. I'm sure there is part of you that wonders if I were to devote, devote myself to this game, could I be among the best? Could I be a top tier magic player? I'm sure that crosses your mind sometimes. And there's nothing suggesting, no, you could never do that. Uh, you know, you've never had that kind of all in dive into the competitive scene. And, you know, you've had some modicum of success that shows you're at least a capable player. So right. with appropriate resources, could you ascend to that level? And those are two very different questions. Like one, there's still these seeds of possibility. One, there's not. And I think that's also a very difficult assessment to make when you're first starting the game. And especially when it came to video games, because growing up, I was like the video game person amongst yeah. all my friends. Like no one beat me at every anything ever, right? I just won everything. I was always the best. And that was common knowledge. Everyone accepted it. Yep. And then the internet came along. Yeah. And I realized- and all of you and me who were that within our little bubble- Yes. Got to yes. play against each other. Yes. And I realized that I was absolutely nothing special when it came to (laughs) playing these video games. I was fine, but there were so many people just completely on another level. And, uh, you know, it was a very eye-opening thing for me and one that maybe I resisted a little bit at first, but ultimately I came to accept, okay, I can still be like above average at video games, Mm -hmm. but I am, I am not a world-class competitor. I am not going to play street fighter on the highest level. It's Mm -hmm. just something that I have to uh, kind of find my own terms with it. So so all of this is like a very long-winded way of saying it, you just have to define your relationship with the games you're going to be playing a little bit more clearly. And I think be conscious of the games you're choosing to play. Find those self-contained hits where you're just like, it's strictly the the game, the feedback mechanisms within the game. And it's it's not about anything broader. It's just about enjoying the experience and the aesthetics of it. Uh, I recently played a really neat self-contained game called a dance of fire and ice. It's like a rhythm game, uh, basically Hmm. a one button rhythm game, very entirely self-contained, very challenging, very interesting enough to capture my attention about a day's worth. Like I just dove into it for a day and then I was like, okay, I'm done with this experience. I appreciated it for what it was. I don't need to gain mastery of it. It was just a cool little thing and look for more opportunities like that. And I think you can have a little bit more peace in your gaming life. I agree. So that was just our intro for today. Yeah. Believe it or not, we actually have a main topic. All right, Jonathan, let's be (laughs) frank here. We didn't want to talk about this topic. Like, it's not that we don't believe there's something important to say about this topic. Right. But it is the topic that every single uh, performance analysis piece of content on the planet 
begins with. Yeah. It's the starting point. It's the, it's quite frankly, it's the question we get more than any other question in the entire world. And that kind of means, okay, at some point we have to answer it, but it just feels like it's something that's been discussed a lot and kind of done to death. And it's also something where I think it's a very personal thing and mm-hmm. you're going to be able to answer this better than I can. I personally don't feel like I'm going to be able to do a lot to help our listeners through this. But I think you might have more to offer. And of course, the topic I am talking about is tilt. We have been asked to talk about tilt so, so, so (laughs) many times on our cast, and we've never done an episode devoted to it. We have finally broken down and are ready to talk about tilt. And I guess I should start by defining tilt in case there's a chance people don't know this term. I'm going to throw it to you, actually, Jonathan. I want to hear your definition of tilt before I offer my own. Yeah. So tilt's really interesting to me as a term because I I think this could be entirely wrong. It's like one of those Genesis stories that it's at least cool if it's false. I think tilt, like everyone attributes it to poker, Mm -hmm. but I think it's originally actually from uh, pinball. Yeah, I think so too. And I don't know this, but I was thinking about this before the cast and- uh, that That is also my assessment of where it came from. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, pinball <laughs> is a, like a box-shaped machine. Basically, you have two flippers on the bottom and you hit a, a, a round metal ball. Wait, wait. Is pinball this rare at this point <laughs> that you actually have to like describe it. pinball? It, it might not. be. It might be. I feel like everyone maybe has the experience of like the old Windows always had that like built-in pinball program. Space that, pinball, yeah. Yeah. Well, the the actual machines, if you shake them at all or like shake them too much, they like they give you a tilt warning. And then if you do it too much, it actually goes into tilt and you no longer can control the paddles. They all go down to their like position where they just let the ball drop to the bottom and you lose that ball. And so because you're like you don't shake the machine when you're happy. (laughs) So... That then became a very, very common term in the poker scene to describe when somebody's emotions are dictating their gameplay rather than the typical repetitive muscle memory decisions they would make in terms of what they do with certain hands in terms of keep fold, how you would bet in certain situations. And so it became this common term for describing somebody who's like, they're, they're letting their emotions play for them. And it's a massive, massively used term in the esports world to describe a very similar situation. Just like when someone's playing a game, when a teammate's playing a game and they are getting overtaken by their emotions. And oftentimes that leads to poor play. And sometimes the people just use it interchangeably to describe when someone's playing poorly and then letting that poor play affect them. I don't know if you have any anything to add. I think that that's basically spot on with the definition I would use. If you would ask me to offer a definition, I would say tilt is when your emotions are preventing you from playing your best. Yeah. And I would also, I mean, I don't know if this was intended in the adoption of the word, but I want to add a little nuance to the pinball description. So Tilt is, you've described it correctly, it's when the machine is tilted too much. But the reason that sensor is there is because if you are able to tilt the machine, like physically lean the machine in one direction or the other, then you can control the trajectory of the ball. Mm, And actually doing that to a small extent to the point where you don't trigger the tilt warning, but still are able to have influence over how the ball moves on the playing field is what makes an excellent pinball player. And pinball is very much a game of skill. It's not a game of chance. Right. That was, in fact, proven in courts. So pinball could continue to exist <laughs> in arcades after it was uh, banned for some time. They like See, the law a- background comes in play in this cast. I, I don't know if this is even from my law background, but I know this story. But pinball was banned in New York City for many, many years. And I believe that when it got unbanned, when the court challenge was successful and contesting the ban, it actually involved having a pinball expert come into the courtroom and play pinball and just rack up ridiculous scores. But a lot of that skill in pinball comes from tilting the board effectively without triggering the tilt warning. So that's kind of an interesting call out. And again, I don't know if this is intended, but emotion is an important tool in competition, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's not value 
it depends on you personally. Some people may find value in this. I don't think you really want to be a cold robot at all times. You want to be able to tap into something that emotion can offer you, be it, you know, intensity or even just joy. I think emotion, you know, shouldn't be excluded from gaming in its entirety. But when it becomes basically approach warping, uh, when it's when it's actually making you a worse player or costing you a game, that is when tilt becomes a problem in much the same way as it does on the pinball machines. Yep. Also, just a quick aside in terms of uh, us saying, you know, we've avoided this forever. I, I think for me, what's weird about tilt as a topic is it does come up professionally quite a bit. Just listen to how we're describing it. It's basically too many emotions get in the way of you performing at your best. Like that really, in a sentence, sums up a lot of what I do with people. And so tilt is almost this thing that all the other concepts we've talked about along the way are other ways to address aspects of your game that perhaps get at tilt. And so with that, like we're going to do our best to crush this topic of tilt and give you some ideas moving forward. But I'd be curious what the context of, of listening to this episode gives you in terms of looking at some of the other skills you've tried along the way. Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost like so broad as to be meaningless, right? It's yeah, like a, emotion in and of itself isn't really an actionable topic. But when you start dialing into specific emotions or specific approaches or like mindfulness, then you can start getting into the actionable topics. So right. this will certainly be like a broader discussion than we typically have, I think. Yeah, Oh, that's interesting. And and again, you're spot on that I don't want to naysay this as a problem. It's something worth talking about. It's just hard to talk about. And it part of the problem with it being hard to talk about is that if you were to ask me, as of course, the non-expert on this podcast, a role I play extremely well, by the way. Crushing. Because uh, I'm, I'm completely clueless. <laughs> so if you were to ask me, how do you avoid tilt, Brian? I would say, <laughs> stop just- tilting. <laughs> And that would be the end of it. I mean, to me, it kind of seems that simple and that's being a little facetious, but all right, let me say it this way. When I'm thinking about how I choose to live my life, the actions I do, the things I I take on, one of the things that always, always, always informs my approach to everything I do is, is this a useful action? Mm. Is there value either to me or to others, to the world at large, like what does this add to the sphere surrounding myself? And I use a very broad definition of useful. Like it's it's not as utilitarian as like there should be no art because it doesn't provide anything. <laughs> no, it's it's not that. It, it's broader in that like if I can spend time creating something that someone else will enjoy, that's a useful action. So there's not many things that fall under completely useless as far as I'm concerned. Like you can find a lot of good in a lot of different actions, but I struggle to find anything useful about the act of letting your emotions control you and letting yourself get caught up in a past mistake and then not being the person that you actually are. You're taking on this kind of mask, this, this faux persona and letting that be your guide through a situation where you really want to be at your best. And mm-hmm. I don't see any use in that whatsoever. And once you accept that and realize like, okay, this is not benefiting me. I think it's still at that moment, completely plausible to lapse into that tilt mode for a moment. But if you're being honest with yourself, you should be able to snap out of it pretty quickly. And you know whatever actions that tilt leads you to take, if it becomes a salty comment to someone or you know leaving the game in a huff, you should very quickly be able to compose yourself and be like, that's not me. I owe someone an apology here and then return and deliver that apology. At, at least that's been my experience over my competitive career with Tilt. When I was a kid, oh, it was there in full force. <laughs> it was, there was no telling myself that I shouldn't be tilting. I threw baseball bats and yelled and got angry yeah. and all that stuff. But as I've understood the emotion a little bit more and understood myself a little bit more, I've just identified it as a non-useful behavior and I've worked it out at this point. Yeah, because we've talked in the past how emotion can be useful. We talked about, you know, priming our emotions when we understand the right amount of energy that we need for a performance that we can use our thoughts, use our emotions, get ourselves to that right spot. And so what's happening with tilt is we are having so much emotion 
to the point that uh, they call it flooding. Basically, there's so much emotion going on in your head that it's just filling everything. And it, like that's all that's going on. So if we think about this idea, we've talked about how there, there's a curve that's like a relationship between how much energy you bring to how, how good you're, you're performing. And there's like this sweet spot to get to. Um, if everyone wants to look up, it's called cusp catastrophe, which is a weird name. I know, but that's the name of the theory. And basically what it says is that when you have so much emotion going on, be it fear, anxiety, anger, whatever, that that takes over everything. And like essentially your, your performance falls off a cliff. If we were to look at it visually, because it doesn't matter at that point if you get yourself where you need to be because all that matters to your brain right now is is the raw emotion that's going on and that emotion is hijacking even the the like muscle memory automatic behaviors you've led up to in this point and you see it in poker and that's why it's such a common term in poker because Good poker players, they know the percentages of what every hand, each card that's flipped, they understand the percentages that are going on. They understand what a proper bet is, especially now that like everything's like game theory optimized. They understand the math behind poker. But when they are experiencing raw emotion to the degree that it's flooding their brain, none of that other stuff matters. Like the, the, the emotion just takes over. And I think a lot of times people wait until those experiences to try to figure out how to get out of it. So that's an interesting point. And we'll definitely go down that road in a moment. But I want to back you up just a second and talk about how your explanation kind of contrasts with mine and how even though I feel like we're saying different things, it still makes sense to me. Okay. So it, it sounds to me like I'm offering a very pragmatic response to what you're describing as a biological process. Mm. And we all know all of our biological processes are different. So for me, maybe it's very easy to say, just don't do it if you do recover very quickly. Because mm-hmm. what was it called again? cusp catastrophe yeah because you're on that's horrible to say by the way i'm going to mess that up and i'm never saying that again actually i'm done with it that thing we were talking about (laughs) yeah 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 my potential for that can look very different from someone else's and maybe i don't reach that level until maybe i've never reached that level or maybe not in recent I, i know i've reached that level certainly when i was younger but maybe in recent years biologically that level has just moved for me and i don't hit that cusp and just have my mental state completely destroyed anymore. Is it possible, one, can that cusp be different in everyone? Two, once you have identified it, can we affect biological processes like that? Like, do we have access to rewiring our brain and getting away and, you know, setting our cusp catastrophe much higher on the scale? I don't know that I can confidently say the the threshold is higher person to person. But I think what you're getting at, which I would agree with is you have likely, even if you don't, even if you can't list them right now, which I think you probably could, like you've identified what it starts to look like, feel like what you do when you are starting down the path towards tilting that you have built the habit of knowing how to pump the brakes a little bit there before you go completely off. Okay. Would do you think that's the case? I think that makes sense. Yeah. Because if you're actively fighting against it, right. If you know how harmful it can be and you know that like, once you go over that cliff, maybe there's no coming back, at least for a moment, that's going to incentivize you to do everything you possibly can to avoid that point. So yeah, maybe as soon as I do start feeling those behaviors that might push me over the edge, maybe I take a moment, maybe I take a breath, maybe I do something else for a while if I'm you know, laddering or doing something like that. I, I will say in general, one of the things I do that I think is very different from a lot of other people is I build a lot of breaks into my gaming. Like I watch Mm. people just sit at a computer and queue up for game after game, after game, after game. 
I take a moment between games. I reflect on it. I think about it. And I'll even go do something else for a little while if I feel like I have to. So I, I think that's very different from a lot of other people. And that's probably part of the tilt control mechanism, if I had to guess. Yeah, I would say it's pretty likely that people who find they experience tilting a lot don't have a deliberate approach to breaks. Like in the sense that even if they do take breaks, maybe they, they're they like random. Like I, I imagine you've probably also had experiences where like just a game goes really badly and you decide like, well, you know, uh, it's time to take a break. And then you just walk away for a bit. I, I think people who tilt a ton don't necessarily do that. Yeah, purposeful breaks are, are certainly something I've leaned on, and I, I think they do give me an edge. Obviously, there's circumstances where you don't have access to breaks. You know, there's competitions where you're mm-hmm. constantly going to be engaged, and then you have to do some more micro things to get away from that tilt monster. But uh, I, I've built that stuff into my game as well. But why don't we not talk so much about my approach? Because I feel like I have this in hand. If I can impart some of that, I will. But I want to know more about what you would do in a professional context if you were faced with someone who just very clearly had this problem. You know, say you're working with a team, right? And the four other people on this team are like, this person has a real problem with tilt and it affects all of us. What are you doing with that person? Like, how are you trying to get them to? redefine their relationship with tilt at that point starts with seeing how well they like are aware of their own tilt and it's not just like a lot of people who who do this from in like when they play they can recognize that they tilt but they don't necessarily have the ability to describe the the warning signs so to speak which is what i was alluding to i think you probably could list these out so Asking questions like, how do you know when you're on tilt? And and by that, I mean, like, w- physically, what does your body do? Like, do you start sweating more? Do you get tense? Do you find that you have tunnel vision? Then the other half of it is, what do you think to yourself, say to yourself? And what do you say verbally? So in there, you're getting the the cognitive piece, their thoughts. You're also getting the physical piece of starting to understand what does my body feel like when I'm tilting? So that's like the base for the awareness. And the second half of it is finding out if the person actually can notice when tilt starts in affecting, impacting, usually reducing their quality of play. Hmm. I, I guess that makes a lot of sense because there's kind of two separate problems, right? The first is someone who's like, I tilt all the time please help me. The second is someone who's like, I'm great at this game. I don't understand why (laughs) I'm not winning in all circumstances, right? Like there's someone who's aware of their own tilt and there's someone who absolutely cannot see it. Right. And and like teams that are comfortable with each other, you can definitely lean on others to help with these warning signs. The problem with, with tilt, and I think it's, it's part of why it's such a common topic and why people are curious is if you are playing a team competition and you have a teammate who tilts, I find a lot of times that conversation doesn't happen very constructively outside of the moment. And and so it's just you, you go on and you hope that maybe it's different next time. And then you're in the middle of competition and your teammate starts tilting and you haven't figured out how to actually address it. And it's like, so we were like, you were joking earlier, like you don't just say like, Hey, stop tilting dude. Like, or like stop tilting like whoever you are it's like not an effective strategy. All you're going to do is piss that person off more. Right. And so, 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 so much that I attempt to work with, with tilt is prevention because actually addressing it in the moment is really hard to do. If you either don't think you tilt or you fully recognize that you're tilt, but you have no idea what it looks like. That's interesting. It seems hard for me to grasp that you could, simultaneously understand that you have tilt and not see the ramifications of it, right? Like don't the two have to go hand in hand? Because otherwise 
isn't there a chance you're just manufacturing tilt because you think it's a behavior you should have? Like there has to be some consequence to your play in order for tilt to have actually manifested. Mm. Is that a fair statement? I'm trying to think. So like for me, I don't, I'm pretty, uh, I have similar experiences to you in that I've gotten to the point where not a lot sends me too far tilting anymore, but I can think of times I was talking about hockey earlier there are times where let's say I have an opportunity to score and I do something slightly wrong. Like maybe I just have a bad shot or I missed a passing opportunity. And it's just like a small error. Um, there are times when that happens and I'll just like say some expletive and probably like put my hands on my helmet or something for a second or just like raise my fists to the sky. And like in that moment, that has a, a temporary effect because I'm obviously more focused on the fact that I just made a mistake and I'm not actively contributing to whatever's going right. on in the game. So right. yeah, even in that moment has a performance detriment, but I'm at the point where it never really goes past that. So I'll, I'll notice what I'm doing and I'll just snap myself out of it and, and then I'll move on. But I think for people who haven't developed that awareness, it's, it's possible to not really realize until you're in the thick of it and I think if you get too far tilted, it's it's like something you can, when you cool off later, you recognize what happened and you recognize it was bad, but perhaps you missed what happened between A and Z. And you're mm-hmm. just like, like, like you game was going well, blah, 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 blah. Something bad happened. I started playing badly. Da, 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 and like, you just don't really know the details. And so it's hard to replicate or think about how to change it next time. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So... We've started to tilt. We've recognized this. I, I, I feel myself either tensing up or uh, you know, I've developed a headache or I'm snapping at people. Something has triggered an awareness of tilt in myself. What actions do you recommend I start taking at that point? Are there discrete hmm. tasks I can do to maybe get myself back in line? Yeah. Weirdly enough, you're uh you're you're not you're playing the non-expert was was pretty spot on for a bunch of them. Um, nice. It's always <laughs> nice when a when a blind squirrel finds a nut, right? Yeah. Uh, like you mentioned, taking breaks, getting up and walking away. If that's an option, so if you're not in a, a timed competition or like in poker, I, I know there are situations where, like, let's say you can sacrifice a couple blinds, like the the equity you get from walking away from the table for a bit and cooling off and and making your future decisions better is likely better than sitting there and playing out a couple blinds like you'll probably end up losing more money and that's that's often part of the advice that people will give to poker players so taking a break if possible is likely one of the best ways to just cool off before you get too hot you mentioned Breathing, like taking a breath. You said it pretty quickly, but breathing has all sorts of awesome physiological effects on us. It's it's one of the direct ways that we can choose to pull ourselves out of fight or flight. And a lot of times when we are having these tilt moments, it's because something's perceived as a threat. We're getting frustrated that we're not playing well, or maybe we're frustrating at a teammate. Either it is like there's something that's going on that we're likely perceiving as a threat to our chances to win a lot of the time. And when our body perceives threat, it goes into fight or flight mode. And that has really cool stuff that happens. You get adrenaline and and all sorts of sweet chemicals going around. Your body cools itself. So if you're like about to fight a lion, that's really sweet. But it doesn't really help us in terms of uh, our emotional state. So if you can just pause, take some deep diaphragmatic breaths. A, a lot of competitions have breaks built into them. And so those, those, if you take those moments to breathe deeply, that can pull us out of fight or flight a little bit and perhaps having a bit more of a, a steady, it's, it's your nervous system, but just like having a steady state to, to your brain at the time can help you like reassess things. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, one other thing I have found very useful it's just verbally acknowledging my own tilt, be it, mm. you know, to myself, to someone else. I think like recognizing it for what it is and what it can be allows me to 
get back to my core value of this is not a useful behavior. So this is going to stop now and I'm not going to lean into this any further. So, you know, it could be something as simple as we could use the poker context again. Like that was a foolish call. I would have never done that if I wasn't on tilt. If you are able mm-hmm. to not just say that as a throwaway <laughs> and actually mean like it, you're lying and to use yourself. <laughs> it, right. And, and use it to like redefine your approach at the poker table. I, I think that's a completely fine approach. You know, if you are, playing a game of magic and after you finish your game you want to go back and say oh i would have never blocked in this fashion Hmm. had i just not been on tilt during that instance i I think all of those are very useful for getting back to where you want to be who you want to be and avoiding those kind of slip-ups because if you're not acknowledging them you're just giving yourself a pass you there's like there has to be an act of contrition almost a little bit of like shame and acknowledged failure for growth. I mean, failure is so important for making yourself a better person. And if you're not willing to admit, I failed in this instance, I let tilt overcome me, then you're not going to take the steps in the future to prevent that from happening again. Yeah. I like what you did there though. You're, you're basically saying, yes, acknowledge it, but then you're pairing the, the acknowledgement with, it sounds like past evidence that she would do something differently. I think so. Yeah, I, that's a fair way of putting it. Like, I would, I would look for past behaviors in the same situation where I would have done the proper thing and been like, right? Like, if in I my, hadn't tilted, in my normal here's what state. I probably would have done. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, honestly, yeah. Uh, the idea of pre-planning statements to say to yourself uh, or to like say to somebody else is definitely a good strategy. Again, this hinges on you having the awareness of entering till or at least what your your warning signs are because you can absolutely do it in a situation where after tilting you can be like okay well i tilted there that didn't go so well had i not tilted i would have xyz but you can even do it in the moment if you if you are so in tune with starting to understand what does your body do when you start tilting what do you start saying to yourself when you start tilting if you're able to recognize that, you can say this stuff to yourself then. So, mm-hmm. hey, I notice I'm about to tilt or like I'm, I'm starting, my emotions are starting to get the best of me. If if I wasn't tilting right now, I would fold this hand. Or it, let's say you're playing League of Legends. Like if, if I wasn't tilting right now, I wouldn't take this fight. And, and that stops you from likely making a game error that like emotions would make. Like automatic, you would probably make a different decision. And the problem with tilting, because it, often leads to overanalysis, tunnel vision, just bad habits in general. It usually makes us perform bad. And when we're performing bad, we get even more bad emotions and it just like spirals. Being able to right. interrupt it a little bit earlier can often head, head it off at the pass. So I, I have to then carry that forward and push you for information. And these are very like ethereal points. I don't know that you're ever going to say, oh, I'm in exactly pre-tilt phase right now, or (laughs) I have fully entered tilt. Step one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But my point is there's obviously differing stages and there's something different about the onset of of tilt versus I am a full-blown tilt monster. I am doing everything (laughs) wrong at this point. I have just thrown away an entire match, you know, in, in my best of five series or something like that based on tilt. You're in it now. You're stuck. You're, you're completely tilted and you need to get out before your next thing, your next game, your next match, whatever it may be. How do you get out once you're that deep? Does the process start to change a little bit? Are there other things you need to look for? Or is it very much just still the same, you know, checking in with breath, trying to get back to a place? Or or is it a new question? Totally. Is mm. it something different you have to prepare for? Yeah, it's hard. I, I think a lot of it's the same. I think when I've been able to help performers build a habit of refocusing and a lot of that has to do with breath control uh, like a mindful approach even something we've mentioned before just grounding like so just noticing a couple things Mm. that you see here feel something that takes your mind off of the game Um, ideally again a break is involved here because you need time to do this sometimes like like not every competition goes well and if this is something that is still you're, you're Early in the stages of, of like slaying your tilt monster, 
it's probably not going to come super easy right off the bat. And so another thing I try to guide people toward is just looking more at long-term progress. Like tilt is a, a symptom of interpreting something going on in a performance in a way that leads to really, really, really raw, often overreaction emotions. And so that habit wasn't formed in a day Mm. and being able to like build the habits to get out of it aren't going to happen in a day either. So if you look at it as like a, it's a portion of your game is, is remote, like being able to notice tilt in the early stages and, and having these skills in place to combat it. So long-term, if you're able to shore up that part of your game, that that's going to be massive for your, your success, your execution. Right. So one of the ways I think about those kind of long-term goals is just about being the person I want to be. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone wants to be the person who is consumed by tilts. No, because it sucks in the moment too. Like it doesn't feel good. No, it feels horrible. And a very few people have made their career leaning into it. (laughs) Those people are mostly like reviled. So I I don't recommend being the tilt monster. Like that's not really a reasonable approach to life. I don't think that'll bring you a lot of happiness or joy. But you're right that finding long-term growth and a lot of you know, my own growth and when I'm having challenges and it can be, you know, like I said, I think I have this one well covered, but it extends to a lot of other challenges too. I think about how failing at that would reflect on my work here, right? Like Mm -hmm. how, how can I put myself in a position to try and share knowledge if I'm not willing to embrace those same things and, and make the same efforts that I'm asking my listeners to embrace. And, you know, maybe you don't have a podcast, you listening to the show right now. So it doesn't (laughs) apply in the same level, but think about, you know, your, your friends, your loved ones, your children. Do you, you want to set this kind of example for them of someone who lets their emotions get the better of themselves, who isn't in control of their actions? I mean, we're talking about the context of gaming, but that kind of lack of control of emotions has consequences in all aspects of life, right? Mm -hmm. It impacts your relationships very negatively. It can impact your professional career. You know, if you're always yelling at your coworkers, that's extremely problematic. So this carries over to a lot of other portions of life. And I, I just find a lot of value in thinking about how I'm portraying myself to the people I care about. And for me, that field has gotten much larger because I care a lot about my listeners. Right. And so now I have, tens of thousands of people who yeah. I care about, you know, how I'm portraying myself. But it also, even when my field was smaller, when it was just, you know, thinking about my parents watching me participate in the competition and I'm yelling at my opponent, like that's not something I want to ever, ever portray. And I find focusing on outside interpretations of my actions to be very useful. What do you think of that approach? I mean, I could I could also make an argument that that's harmful. We have to have belief in ourselves. We have to be self-assured. But at the same time, I do think the image you're portraying is something you should always be considerate of. Yeah, well, I think it makes sense for you. That example definitely makes sense for you. And I think it will make sense for other people because it's it should be apparent to people by now that, well, one of the things you value in, like, especially what is... I think part of what has driven you towards podcasting, writing articles, et cetera, is you like creating value and putting it out there in a, in a high quality sense. And so that's like a, a pretty big part of your identity. And so it would make sense that if you can see tilting as like, like if you were known for being a person who doesn't have a handle of their emotions, especially in competition, that if that could negatively affect people watching, listening, reading your content, like that kind of strikes against who you are. And I think other people have similar motivations that are tied to other people. Uh, They might be slightly different values, but like it makes a lot of sense that that is part of what motivates you to to shore up this part of your your character, your competition too. Mm, So maybe that's more unique to me, but I'm sure we all have things about our personalities, like unique ways to find ammunition against the tilt monster, right? There's something that drives all of us that we can all lean on. I mean, what, from your perspective, why do you think you have successfully overcome this scourge of the competitive scene? (laughs) Uh, I think part of it is I have a lot of deliberate practice towards 
self-control, self-regulation. Like I definitely have constant mindful practice. I also, it's just been like a position I've put put into in a lot of realms of just like being the, I don't know if it's the voice of reason, but on the flip side, I'm also just really, really competitive. And I know that the times where I've allowed emotion to take hold of whatever I'm competing in, they don't go well, or like maybe you can succeed in spite of your tilt sometimes, but you're definitely not stacking the deck in your favor. And so for me, at the very least, tilt is a barrier to me winning. And and we talked about it in your science, like we both hate losing and like th- that's part of it. And additionally, just from an authentic place, I am a person who has dedicated his life to helping other people either have greater well-being or to perform at their best more often. And I don't take that responsibility lightly. And I know that if people are looking to me for content about how to have enhanced well-being or how to perform at your best more often, and then they also see me like, here I am on this cast, I'm talking about like how to prevent till. And then like, let's say after this, I just a queue up in a game or something and there's a camera on me and all of the listeners get to like watch me play this game. And if I, if I just tilt off the planet, my message loses a lot of ammunition. So I I want people to be able to see me taking my best effort towards doing the things that I suggest people do. Right. I think that's an excellent approach and it informs a lot of what we do. I I hope this was useful for our listeners. I, I do think there's, this constant struggle with the topic where if we have gotten to a place where we're comfortable with tilt, then it's very hard to impart that on other people, at least for me, because this is something I've talked about, not in this context, just with friends about, you know, overcoming tilt and how, how not to let it affect you. It's a topic that comes up just in casual conversation all the time. And I don't know that I ever offer anything useful. So I hope we did here. I hope we reached all of you who have had issues with Tilt, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, on our Discord, over on our Patreon page, whatever works for you. Let us know what you thought about this episode, if you were able to take anything away from it and find some useful approaches to your relationship with Tilt. If there's something you think we missed, hit us with that too. We can certainly revisit it at the start of next week's cast and do a little cleanup there. But we will be back soon to play some more head games. Head games.